Let us call on the name of the Lord. Our Father in heaven, we come before you this afternoon as the body of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we come, Father, with a sense of awe that we stand not in isolation in this world, but even as we professed our faith, we recognized the unity we have with brothers and sisters in the Lord throughout the world, throughout history, and that one day we will stand together as one flock in the new Jerusalem. We thank you, Father, that you, through your Son and Spirit, are gathering a church from every tribe, tongue, and nation from the beginning to the end of the world. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that your word may continue to spread that more and more be brought to faith, and that in this way, your kingdom will come. We long for the day that the number of the elect is complete, and our Lord Jesus Christ will return on the clouds of heaven to take his people home as a bride adorned for her husband. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you would bless us this afternoon through the proclamation of your word. We sit here as real people, feeling real things in our lives. Some are rejoicing. Some are grieving. Some are near the end of their life. Others are near the beginning. We have so many different things going on, Father. We pray that your word will address all of us. Send us on our way rejoicing, thoughtful, contemplative, ready again to serve you in the week that lies ahead. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you would keep sin and temptation far from us, fill us with your Spirit, and hear our prayer in Jesus Christ's name, through, through whom his precious blood, all our sins are washed away. Amen. Our scripture reading this afternoon is Ephesians 3, the verses 1 through 13. And after we read that, let's sing Psalm 71, stanzas 1, 2, and 3. Ephesians 3, 1 through 13, we read here the word of God. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is, the mystery made known to me by revelation as I have already written briefly. In reading this then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to men in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that, through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this gospel by the grace of God's grace given me, through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all God's people, 
this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. His intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him, and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory." text is Ephesians 3, the verses 14 through 21. This sermon is actually part of a, a series of sermons, but I, I believe that I can explain it in such a way that you quickly are familiar with the context. Verse 14, for, for this reason... I kneel before the Father, 
from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. After the sermon, let's sing hymn two, stanzas one, four, and five. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, our text begins with a mysterious sounding for this reason. Now it seems even more mysterious when you realize that in verse 1 of the chapter, Paul said exactly the same thing, for this reason. It looks like a coincidence, but it's not. Paul is talking about the same reason. That reason he has explained in chapter 2, where he said, Jesus Christ has broken down the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile. Meaning that Jesus Christ has taken the two and made one new church. A church comprised of people of all nationalities, all colors, all social status, all walks of life, whether genius or mentally challenged. Take all these people and make them equal members in his one church. And so when Paul starts chapter 3 by saying, for this reason, he's talking about... This new church that crosses all borders and all all boundaries. A church in which people of every color and nationality can exist alongside each other. But as soon as he says that, he goes off on a tangent. And Paul can't get enough of this subject. He says, you know what? I'm talking here about a mystery. Nobody ever knew it before. It's only in the mind of God. It is a mystery that I'm now revealing to you a church without borders, a church without boundaries, a church that takes in anyone who believes in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. So amazing that that Paul says in verse 10, that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. And in my previous sermon, I explained that those rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms are angels and demons. When the church realizes her full potential, when the church has no borders, no dividing wall of hostility, where people of all color and nationality and walk of life, when they are equally within the church, then even angels and demons take notice. Angels because they rejoice. For them, God's people is no longer just Israel, but it's it's going over the whole face of the whole world. And they're excited about the work of salvation. 
demons groan. Because every time a new nation or a new colored person comes into the church, that means that their window of opportunity to fill up hell is getting smaller and smaller. When the church is what it should be, angels rejoice, demons groan. Now it is in verse 14 that Paul gets back to what he started in verse 1 when he says, For this reason, for this reason that there is a church without boundaries and without borders, I kneel before the Father. You see, Paul, Paul, he has seen the mysteries. He has a vision of what the church can be and will be. But, But a church has to see it too, and it has to work for it. It can't just rest. It has to have the doors open. It has to realize its potential, its glory, and its majesty, and its beauty. Otherwise, the church will not amount to anything, or not much at all. As very deep application, direct application for us today, brothers and sisters, if we think too small of the church, then we've got a problem. You know, so often we we think in our families and with our children and young people, we say the problem for young people today is the world and culture in which they live. And that's true enough. But sometimes the biggest problem for our children is that they're growing up in a family where parents do not realize just how beautiful and glorious the church is. When in our midst and in our homes and in our families, We recognize what it means to be a church, what we can achieve, what we can become. And when that enthusiasm and that joy is in our hearts and in the hearts of the parents, the children pick that up and the church grows. It gets serious about evangelism, about mission work. And if a stranger walks into the building, he doesn't feel the dividing wall of hostility, but he's welcomed. If he's black, if he's yellow, if he's First Nation Canadian, doesn't matter. You want to be here? Welcome. Not as a visitor, but to be one of us. There's no difference. If you believe in Jesus Christ, you belong. We're going to look at that this afternoon, brothers and sisters, also recognizing one more thing. The the end of chapter 3 in Ephesians is a transition point. Ephesians has six chapters. Three chapters and then another three chapters. The first three chapters are an explanation of the awesome grace of God in Jesus Christ. Only when you comprehend that, and when you take it to heart, and recognize who God is and what God has done for you, can we proceed to the last three chapters, which describe how we are to live our lives as Christians to the praise and the glory of God. You understand what I'm saying, brothers and sisters? If you don't appreciate the first three chapters, you might as well not read the the last three chapters because it's meaningless for you. The last three chapters are for people whose hearts are on fire for Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. We summarize our text in this way. Paul prays that his readers experience a complete relationship with God. And we'll look at the ground of this prayer content of this prayer, and doxology to this prayer. We read in verses 14 and 15, which is our first point, for this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven and earth derives its name. For this reason, 
Because there's a church without boundaries and without borders, in which a Jew and a Gentile are equally members. For this reason, says Paul, I bow my knee before my heavenly Father. We all recognize that that is an expression of, of humility, of deep reverence and respect to God. But Paul addresses God as Father. He's allowed to do that because Jesus Christ taught us to pray our Father in heaven. Similarly, when he was raised up from the dead and Mary Magdalene met him in the garden, Jesus says, I am returning to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Meaning that because Jesus Christ paid for our sins with his blood and reconciled us to God, God is our Father. The Father of Jesus is our Father. And we can call him Abba, Father. That's an important image, because we recognize even in our day-to-day lives, fathers are, or they should be, an image of stability and of care. What father, if his child asked him for a loaf of bread, would give him a stone? Fathers take care of their children, and our Heavenly Father will take care of us, his church. Now Paul prays to the Father and he says, from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. So our Heavenly Father is the Father of a family. The church is his family. And he gives his name to the church. We understand that image because today if a man gets married and he has children, he gives his name to his wife and to his children. God also gives us his name. He says, you are my family. But notice it says, his whole family in heaven and on earth. What does that mean? What does that signify that the family of God is in heaven and on earth? Now we understand that that family is to be redeemed in the blood of Jesus Christ. And if we look around this afternoon, we say, this is the family of God. We are the bride of our Lord Jesus Christ. But it's not just us, brothers and sisters. It's also those who have died and gone to heaven. And it's also those who are not yet born, but they are the elect, and they will one day be born and believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. God says, I am the father of a family of people who are in heaven, who are here on earth, and who are yet to be born. That's a very comforting image, brothers and sisters. You know, sometimes when we think of those who have died and those who have passed on, that they are in a completely different dimension. Uh, we, We know where they are, but we're cut off. There's a wall between us. And that's simply not true. We are connected. It's, it's, that doesn't mean that you can talk to people in heaven and they can directly t- talk back to you, but we are connected. We're one church. We are one family. Together our names are written in the book of life. I think of some scriptural examples like Revelation 6, which talks about the souls under the altar. That's people who have died, who are in heaven, and they are praying. And what they're praying is, how long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? So they are praying for us here on earth. 
Similarly, in Hebrews 12, when we talk about the martyrs, we read, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Those who have died and gone to heaven, the martyrs even, they are a cloud of witnesses encouraging, shouting for us, run! With perseverance, the race that is set before you. So people in heaven, they know us and they're praying for us. They're cheering for us. And we also know about them. Here in our own congregation, as well as in Providence, recently we've had a number of people very dear to us who have died. And who have passed on. They are not now separated from our lives. They have gone up into glory, but they're still part of the family. They are alive and well. They pray for us. They cheer us on. Together we are the family of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a very beautiful and comforting image. In itself, telling us a lot. But now, that's not Paul's real point for for mentioning this. In addition to the comfort it gives to us, what it's trying to do is make us recognize just how big God is and his work is. It's so simple, so so easy to think of the church in, in small terms. What is a church for you, my brother, my sister? Is it just a, a couple of hundred people sitting here in this auditorium? Small, insignificant in the big scheme of things? Tomorrow there's election in, in Edmonton, maybe a new mayor? There's a war going on in Afghanistan. Is that the big thing? Those are important things. But it's nothing like the church gathering work of our God. Our God is the God of history. Our God is the God of of gathering a church. It's huge. Already millions are in heaven. Millions of believers are here on this earth. And maybe millions or billions more are still to be born and to believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. The church of God is glorious. It's awesome. It's what history is all about. Whatever's happening in this world is ultimately geared to gathering, defending, and preserving a church. My brothers, my sisters, you need to understand that. And to be excited about what it means to belong to the church of God, to be part of the body of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you're not excited, if you don't see the big picture, if you don't see this dividing wall being torn down and and people from all over the world and all walks of life being drawn in, if you're not excited, then you're not part of the action. You can't be part of building up the church of God. But those who see what God is doing, who are excited, they're the ones who are building up the congregation. They're excited about evangelism and mission work. And if you have children, understand that well, brothers and sisters. If you have children, and those children see in your parents the love and enthusiasm for the church, that will be one of the biggest lessons in their lives that they too are excited to know about God and Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. That brings us to our our second point, and that's the content of Paul's prayer. He prays that out of his glorious riches, 
He may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now, remember, Paul is praying for a church without borders and without boundaries. And he prays that the glorious riches of God will strengthen the church, will strengthen the members of the church. Now, the glorious riches of God is everything that he is and everything that he does. It's his attributes. He's eternal, almighty, the overflowing fountain of all good. And what he does, he created the world. He upholds it. He sent his son to die for our sins. And one day he will bring us into a new world, into a paradise restored, the new Jerusalem. Paul is praying that all the riches and the power of God be focused to strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now the Father works through the Holy Spirit that he has poured out in Pentecost. And Paul says, God, my Father, use all your power through your spirit to work in the inner man. The inner man is our heart. It is the seat of our emotions, our feelings, our deepest dreams. It's the engine that runs our lives. So Paul's not, not praying that you all look like fine Christians. That on the surface and the outside, you're sitting here, your eyes are open, you're, you're part of things. This says, let the Holy Spirit get into people's hearts. Where they live where they think, where they believe, what is really important to them, that the Holy Spirit so work in our hearts that he opens up a door by which our Lord Jesus Christ can enter so that Jesus Christ is in us. We have here a very Trinitarian image. It is the Father powerfully working through the Spirit, and the Spirit is the one who puts Jesus Christ in our hearts so that Christ is in us, and we are in him. And that transforms our lives. Now maybe brothers and sisters you say. None of this is really that terribly new for us. I mean, We pray that the father will strengthen us. That the Holy Spirit will work in our hearts. That Jesus will dwell in our hearts. But you're missing what the apostle Paul is saying. If you think he's just relating to us certain basic theological facts. Paul is begging you. Paul is desperate that you don't just know these things, but you feel them and you experience it in your heart and in the inner man. He prays that being rooted and established in love, you may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of God, love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses all knowledge. What he's praying for is that when you have faith in Jesus Christ and you love him as Lord and Savior, that you grasp. To grasp Jesus is not just to know him, but to experience him and to live in that joyful fellowship with him that absolutely transforms your lives. You know, knowledge is very important. We need to, to know the Bible to know Jesus. But knowledge by itself is pretty much useless. 
You know, I, I have been around long enough. I've known people in the church who knew their theology. They could talk about election and reprobation. They could have theological discussions about infralapsarianism versus supralapsarianism, whatever that is, you might, might think. But they could talk to their blue in their face about it. I thought, you know these things, but you're not experiencing it. You don't show it in your marriage, or the way you raise your children, or your love for Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. My dear brothers and sisters, understand this well. It's not just enough to know Jesus, but to experience him. In your heart, that you feel that deep down joy that Jesus died for your sins. That you have been born again. That you belong to his bride, his church. And you have this passion, this driving enthusiasm to give your life to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Don't you dare sit here and let this go in one ear and out the other and think that this is not important because it's exactly the point that Paul's making you need to see and to experience how wide, how long, how high and deep is the love of Christ. What he is. All that he has done. Do you know it in your mind and in your heart? And is it changing your whole life? Paul is begging that you know that and that you experience that and be a living member of the church. Paul is bringing that to a climax when he says that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. There is a sense here of motion, of moving up and forward into being like God. Now, we cannot be God, but we sure can be the image of God. And we can more and more become like him as the image of God. The Apostle Paul also speaks about this in 2 Corinthians 3, which almost acts like a commentary on our text. Paul speaks there about Moses. Moses used to go on Mount Sinai and meet the Lord there. And when he did, his face shone like the sun. So when he came down, he had to put a veil over his face because Israel couldn't, they couldn't handle that. But Paul says, now today, you can meet with God and you shine like the stars. He says, whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and when the Spirit, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we, who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Again, we see here the power of God at work through the Spirit, but when that spirit works on our hearts, on the inner man, putting Jesus Christ in our hearts as our Lord and our Savior, we are transformed. And the darkness that once shone from our hearts is displaced by a new light. We emerge from our old shell, our old sinful nature. We emerge a new man, a new woman, moving forward, growing up into the measure of the fullness of God, his image, to be what he wanted us to be in paradise, holy, righteous, 
good, able to live with him forever to his praise and his glory. We can never become that perfectly in this world, but we we are growing. We are changing as the inner man is filled with Jesus Christ and we comprehend how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Jesus Christ. It changes our lives and we are becoming more and more the image of our God. That brings us to our our final point, the last two verses of our text, which is a doxology. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. A doxology is is a word of praise for God. Even the Lord's Prayer has a doxology. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. It's praising God. It's a way of saying amen. Lord, we believe that you as our Father, giving us a Savior, you are more than able to do whatever we ask or can even imagine. One of the striking things here in, the, in these last two verses, and actually in our whole text, you see that particularly in the original Greek, is that Paul is fumbling. Paul is, is groping for words. He, he, he just can't get it down right. Now, you may understand that Paul was probably a genius. And he was, it was revealed to him the mysteries of our salvation. He was even once taken up into heaven to see the glory of heaven. Paul has written letters that people have been reading for 2,000 years and people have been reading all their life long and they're still digging deeper and deeper into the rich message that Paul brought. So who can know the truth like Paul? But here in this passage, he's fumbling. He's groping. He, he, he just can't say it well enough how awesome and great our God is. He says, this is what I describe, but God is that big. He is our Father. He is the Almighty. He loves us. He gave His Son for us. He can do everything that He promised. And He will do everything that you need and anything that you ask for. You need to believe it. You need to trust in God. You need to embrace him in the inner being in your heart. As we said in our introduction, the end of Ephesians 3 is a transition point. First three chapters have outlined how great our God is. He elected us to salvation in Jesus Christ even before creation. And Jesus Christ has all the power to gather, defend, and preserve his church. If you understand that, you may proceed. There's a purpose for proceeding. If you know what it means that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, if it thrills you to the core of your being, turn to chapter 4, 5, and 6, because you'll want to read it. You'll want to know how to live as a child of God in true righteousness and holiness, how to be honest, how to be decent, how to love your wife and raise your children and live a life to the praise and the glory of God. Brothers, there's a future for you. 
There is a future for this church. And this church can be a light to the whole world around us. When you, in your own heart, can say, Jesus loves me. This I know. And I am thrilled about it. Amen. Oh uh...